Thanks again, praise team. Happy Palm Sunday. It might not seem like it outside, but it is Palm Sunday in here, amen? Well, that was pitiful. Can I ask what? It's Palm Sunday in here, amen? All right, that's a little bit better. That's right. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit crazy out there, but, uh, but boy, the day that we're celebrating is just an incredible day. And, and so this is actually the kickoff to the week of Passion, we call it, the Passion Week. Uh, uh, sometimes we call it the Holy Week. And, uh, and so this, uh, this is the week that we walk through the events of what happened in the life of Christ during his last week. And uh, so the week of Passion is just an incredible thing. Let me ask you this. Have you ever... Have you ever had an experience where you were so looking forward to this, some kind of positive experience, and then when you actually got the opportunity to, to, to be there, what you've anticipated was kind of a letdown? Have you ever had that, this, this uh, you know, difference between, say, reality and, and expectations, right? And, and uh, in fact, you might wake up, say, in the middle of spring thinking it's going to be spring outside. I'm just throwing that out there as an option, and then you wake up and find out, no, it's, it's Michigan, right? So you never know what you're going to get. Hey, but I look at it, I say it's improvement anyway, because I think it was one year uh, ago today, so 52 weeks ago on that Sunday, that we actually had to cancel church for snow. So this is improvement, amen? Amen. So we'll, we'll take it. But yeah, there's sometimes where, where our, the reality of, our, of something does not match the expectations uh, that we have. So you might... For example, uh, be planning this trip, this romantic trip with your spouse to go uh, to the Eiffel Tower in Paris, right? And this romantic uh, thing, and then you get there and find it's not quite, it's not quite the same thing, or maybe Venice or something like that. And then you get this image in your mind, and the reality is just, it, it isn't quite the same. Or maybe it's not something that big. Maybe it's just a little thing, like you... you uh, you, you go to a fast food restaurant, and this is on the menu, and this is what you get. <laughs> How many of us have experienced that before, right? So uh, uh, the rest of you haven't been to the... Oh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, uh, well, maybe it's something that you've, you've put into your... You know, some effort into something yourself. So maybe, after all these years of watching, watching Bob Ross, you've decided to paint with Bob Ross, and it didn't quite, quite get there close close, but uh, no, no, not quite there. Uh, uh, or the, the Wall of China, you see that, and, and this is the typical Wall of China. Or I'll do one more. How about uh, maybe your thought of when you're having your first child, and you just have this image of what it's going to be like to have this beautiful baby in your, <laughs> in your house and everything, and, and just feeding this baby, and it's going to be so cute. And... and uh, and so, I, know, well, I know what you're thinking. Where did I get this picture of Alan Troop from? <laughs> so, but uh, thank you, Christy, for sending that to me. So, uh, appreciate it. You know, sometimes, really, um, you know, we, we, sometimes we don't appreciate something simply because we have this unrealistic expectation from the beginning. And, and so when, when we actually get an opportunity to experience it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a letdown, Right? I mean, that's, that's human nature. Uh, let me ask you this. What does it mean to have God, the creator of the universe, right, as your king? And I'll tell you, it's not what you would expect. 
that safe to say? It isn't what, I don't think it is what we expected. In fact, what I'll propose today is that it's actually even better than what you would expect. It's something much better than what you would expect. But it has never been what we expected. In both Testaments, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is not what, we, what mankind expected it to be like, to have God as their king. Uh, so today, I'm going to break the normal Palm Sunday protocol here and begin the passage all the way back into the early chapters of the Bible, and we'll make our way to the Palm Sunday passage. Um, but I want to do this to help us get some perspective of the events of the week of Passion that we're into today. So let's start with, with take one, this idea of having God as king. So this is take one, this is Old Testament here we're going to talk about here. What is it like to have God as king? Well, if we remember back in Deuteronomy, in part of the, the last book of the law, so the fifth book of the Bible, in Deuteronomy, God gave them the law. Remember that? Uh, we, they called it the Torah, which is Hebrew word for law, and, and uh, he gave it to them, and God alone, at the beginning, God alone enforced the law. And he set himself up as the sole king over Israel. Now, how many of you would like to have God as, as your king? Wouldn't that be awesome? How about even as a president? Wouldn't that be cool? If, if we could actually have God as our president, wouldn't that be awesome? And, and I'm not knocking any presidents. I'm just saying there's no human being that can match to that, match, match God in, in that. So God set himself up as the king over Israel. And not only was he to be the king over their behavior, but he was to be the king over their hearts and over their morality. And he gave them the Ten Commandments and he, he, he taught them how to live and how to live in community amongst each other. And, uh, and they were to live up to that. Imagine if they had lived up to those, even just the Ten Commandments, what life would have been like for them. In fact, this came with a lot of promises. And so uh, I'll take a look. Let's uh, go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we'll read verses 12 through 16. And uh, these are some of the promises that, that we hear if they would just submit themselves to God as their king. Verse 12 reads, then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep you um, or keep with you the covenant of mercy which he swore to your fathers. So he's saying if you follow the Ten Commandments and then he wrote what's called the Book of the Law, that's also in the book of Deuteronomy, and he says if you, if you uh, which is expounded on the Ten Commandments, if you follow these things, this is what's going to happen. These are the, the benefits and I'm going to keep my covenant with you. Verse 13. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also, you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over you. Your eyes shall uh, have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. What a promise, right? Think about that. Now, this is not a promise made to the United States. This was a promise made to Israel that if they would let God be their king, this is what would happen. And they were going to do well economically. There, the, the, there would be absolutely no barren women in, in the, or animals 
in the entire nation. When, when they're talking about war, God would fight the battles for them, right? And so you, you've got a win-win situation for everybody. And so this idea is that God was their king. In fact, we call this in theological terms of theocracy. Theo comes from the word which means God, and then krasi, uh, which means to rule. And so a theocracy means it's a God-ruled nation. And uh, so God gave them the law and Deuteronomy, and he enforced it. And so, you know, things actually went pretty well at the beginning. Do you remember the story as we think back through Israel's history? And, and, and things went well at the beginning because remember what comes right after the book of Deuteronomy? Does anyone remember? Joshua comes, uh, comes next. So in the book of Joshua, there's some mistakes, right? But, but by and large, they're following God and they're doing what God asks them to do. And does God do any supernatural things to protect them as a nation in the book of Joshua? He sure does. And, and he, he, he stops the Jordan River so that they can cross through on dry land. And he, they, they march around Jericho and, and God brings down the walls. All they had to do was march around the walls. And God tears down the walls of, of Jericho. And they were fighting giants and, and winning. And, and you might even remember where God was sending hail. And the, the hail would only land on the enemies around them. And none of it would land on them. And, and the hail was killing their enemies. And, and they were surviving. It was just a, an awesome thing. And we get to see the promises of Deuteronomy happening in real time during the book of Joshua. But the Israelites failed miserably without, before too long. They failed miserably to obey the law. And things turned quite sour in the, in the next book. What's the next book right after Joshua? Judges. And in the book of Judges, things turned very sour. People started following false gods. They started joining sex cults. They started killing their babies. I mean, it was bad. It was like America. <laughs> so God had to lift his hand of protection and his hand of blessing off of his people because they weren't keeping up with their end of the bargain. They weren't keeping up with uh, their, the command to follow no other gods. And so he started to allow them to suffer the consequences for their poor choices. There's a little sentence that shows up multiple times in the last few, in the few chapters of the book of Judges. Here's the, the, the first of those. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you find this verse repeated multiple times in the last chapters of the book of Judges. Things were not going well. Now, it's interesting here. You see two concepts found in this sentence. First, the idea that there was no king in Israel. What did God say in Deuteronomy? Who was to be the king of Israel in Deuteronomy? God was to be their king. Who was the king during, during the book of Joshua? God was their king. And all of a sudden, now he's saying Israel had no king. What does that mean? God is gone. That means they rejected God as their king. It wasn't supposed to be that way. And, and so if someone just looking at it from a human perspective might look at it and say, oh, that was Israel's problem. They didn't have a king. All the other nations had kings, but they didn't have a king. So that's what they needed. There was a, there was a lack of leadership, right? And if they just had leadership, but from a, a biblical perspective, we understand, no, the problem, is, it, it's a lack of leadership, but it's because they rejected the leadership that God gave them in, in himself and through his law. And had they just obeyed the law, things would have gone completely differently. Then, then that 
leads us into the second half of the verse, where we read, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know what this is called? Subjective morality. Subjective morality. Subjective morality means that what is right and wrong, that's what morality is talking about, what's right or wrong is decided by the subject, not the act itself. So there's no such thing as something being wrong for everybody. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's I'm the one who decides what is right or wrong. Now what happens when you have a room full of people and everyone is, is the final judge of what's right or wrong? Right? Just watch a group of third graders when the teacher has to go to the office for a few minutes and you'll have your answer. Right? What happens? It's human nature. Right? When there's no one in charge, lack of leadership, and then you have subjective morality where everyone does what is right, then everyone starts looking out for themselves, and selfishness is not what we need more of in any culture on this planet. Amen? Amen. I mean, we're selfish enough. And so when you have this subjective morality, uh, Combined with this lack of leadership, now you've got a bad situation. And Israel was in constant conflict then with the surrounding nations. As God lifted his hand of protection off of them, the surrounding nations, uh, they, they were in constant conflict. And they looked at it and said, but what's the difference between us and them? They were monarchs. They had kings. They, they, they had kings. And so uh, by the time you get to 1 Samuel then, Thing that, that you have this human perspective of that the problem is just this lack of leadership. And God's perspective is, no, the problem is you've rejected the divine leadership that I offer to you. So let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and see, what, see where the story continues from here. And this will, I promise, get us back to Palm Sunday, all right? Uh, but let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So even the religious leaders of Israel had become completely corrupt. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like what? Like all nations. See, the problem, instead of getting on our knees, instead of repenting, instead of saying, All right, God, we rejected your leadership. We want you to be the leader of our, we want you to be the king. They start saying, We want to have a, a, a king over us like the other nations. We want to be like them. And so instead of blaming, blaming their situation on their morality, they blamed it on the lack of human leadership. They wanted a human king. Why? Because having God as their king failed to live up to their expectations. They had this idea of what it was going to be like to have God as their king, and they said, yes, that's what we want. And all of a sudden, God wants to be the ruler over their hearts, they say, ooh, uh, we, weren't, we weren't prepared to give that. We want, we want our desires to lead us, not God's word. And so they started following other ways. It failed to live up to their expectations. Now, they liked the parts about God being their, uh, you know, the, the political and military leader who, who conquers all their enemies. They liked that part. But they did not like the idea of a moral code that they'd have to live by. They liked their sin. And that was actually the real problem. 
Look how the story unfolds from there. Look at verse, uh, verses 6 through 9 in the same passage. 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 9. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God makes it very clear. I was the king. They've rejected me so that I cannot reign. By the way, that word reign is, is used of kings or rulers to, to rule over something. And he's saying, I, I am not the one who reigns in their hearts anymore. Verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I have brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day which, uh, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they're, they're doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So God's response basically is do, do what they ask. I'm going to concede. Do what they ask because they rejected me as king. But give them a warning. Let them know. Let them know. And he does. He gives them a warning. Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Uh, will set some to plow his, his ground and reap his harvest. And some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his his chariots. In fact, this goes on and on from, from uh, verse 13 through 18. And he warns them about the high cost of having a human king. Saying, to, to set up this government, that costs money. Let me ask a quick question. This is kind of a no-brainer. How many of you enjoy paying taxes? I don't see a single hand in here, right? How many of you do pay taxes? Wow, close to half of you. That's, that's great. I want to know your tricks. I don't know. I'm just kidding. No, of course, you, you, it's something that you do, but you don't want to do it, right? It, it's not a pleasant thing, but yet we have to do it. Why? Because we have a human government, and so to have a human government, that costs money. And he walks through and he explains the taxes. He explains the draft. He, he explains all of these kinds of things that they were going to have to do. And, and, um, and the worst part of it is they will no longer be able to rely on God to be their king. They're going to have to rely on a human to be their king. When it comes to fighting battles, who would you rather have on your side? A human or God? Makes sense. Yeah, it, it, would, it would be God. But look at their answer, verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us. That we may also be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us fight our battles. So God gave them exactly what they wanted, and they were given a human king. When you think about the, the real problem that was going on here, the real problem is that the people needed a divine king, but what did they want? They wanted a human king. They needed a divine king, but there's enough distance between us and God and and what he wants for us and what we kind of want for ourselves sometimes, that, that, that they did not want that. They wanted a human king. And so God lays out this plan, which takes us through both Testaments now. God lays out this plan, this twofold plan, 
Uh, and his solution is, is, has two parts to it. Number one, show them the failures of a human king. And then number two, introduce them to the divine human king. Let me explain that. First, to show them the failures of a human king. <clears throat> All you have to do is continue reading in 1 Samuel, right? And, uh, and, and you read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, then 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And, and, and it's not good. In First and Second Samuel, you have a united kingdom, so at least it's one kingdom, uh, but it's, it becomes an utter disaster. Um, you have uh, uh, Solomon, who has a divided heart and, and is involved in wickedness. As well. Even though he has wisdom, he, he's involved in wickedness as well. In First and Second Kings, the, you see the, the nation split. So on the north, you have Israel. On the south, you have Judah, and they split. And, uh, and, and it goes king after king after king. In out, out of all of the kings of Israel, you find these words as a description. And so-and-so did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. For every king of Israel, and all but a handful of them in Judah. It's not good. It's not good. And both of those situations ended up in captivity. Or in captivity when the, the Assyrians ultimately came down and conquered the north in 722 B.C. And then the Babylonians came and took Judah in 586 B.C. Show them the failures of a human king so that they understand, which sets the stage for number two, where you can introduce them to this divine human king. By the way, when I say this divine human king, who is the only person in all of history who is 100% God, that's what divine means, and 100% man, that's what human means. Who is that? Jesus. Jesus Christ. He's the only one. He's setting us up for that. He's setting us up for that day. And, uh, and this is what, what actually links us now to Palm Sunday, because on Palm Sunday, Jesus is finally being introduced in Jerusalem, right? This is the capital. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. This, he's been called the Messiah. You know what Messiah means? Anointed to be king, right? So, so here's Jesus. The, the Greek word for that is Christos, where we get the word Christ. Whenever you're Christ or Messiah, it's the same thing. There's one's the Hebrew word, one's the, the Greek word. And so Jesus Christ is this, this, this king. And, uh, and so that brings us to the day that we're in right now, the, of the Passion Week. And we're going to look at this. And I want to look at the entire week of Passion from the beginning of the week to the end of the week today. We'll focus on the last day. We'll focus, we're going to take it all the way up to the death of Christ um, today. And then next week... We're going to talk about the, the best day of that week. Amen? Amen? And so we're going to talk about that. should be fun. Matthew 21 through 27 takes us through the, this week, right? This week of passion. And so when we, we walk through these days, and chapter 21 is the, is the beginning, and chapter 27 is the end of that week. And so uh, that's a lot of text to go to just seven days. So this is a big deal, right? I mean, if you think about it, Matthew 1 has, and Matthew 1 and 2 has the, the Christmas story. By, by chapter 4, Jesus is an adult, right? And he's, he's arguing with Satan and, and uh, having the, the temptations. So if, if Matthew thought four chapters is enough to cover most of Jesus' adult, you know, or up to his adult life, and now we have seven chapters on seven days, that tells us these are important days, right? Mm -hmm. These are very important days. But it's interesting how we go from celebration to the crucifixion in this, in this period of time. It begins on, on, in chapter 21 with what we call the triumphal entry. So the whole week begins with celebration. 
And, uh, and Palm Sunday is what we call the name of, because of the palms that were laid out as a sense of worship. When Jesus was coming into the city, and he's coming in, and, and, uh, and it's, a, it's a celebration. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 21 and look at verses 6 through 11. This is what we read. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him, Jesus, on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the, on the ground, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the, on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Before reading verses 10 and 11, I want to make sure we understand what that means. Hosanna is Hebrew for save us. They're basically saying, here comes our Savior. But in their minds, what their expectations are is a little bit different than what Jesus was going to offer. And we already see glimpses of that in what they're calling him. Hosanna, so save us, son of David. What's the son of David mean? Well, who was the king of Israel at one point? David. And it was David that received the promise that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. So what are they saying? This is that Savior. Now what we're going to find is their idea of the Savior is a little bit different than what Jesus was offering. Yeah. They're wanting the Savior, but in a very different sense. Let's continue to read. and we'll, we'll see this unfold. Verse 10. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And this is where we begin to see that their understanding was, was not necessarily wrong, but incomplete. Was Jesus the prophet? Yes. Could he prophesy of the future? He sure did. But is Jesus just a prophet? But if you were asked, who is Jesus? Is the prophet the first thing that would come out of your mouth? Probably not. You'd probably say something about him being the son of God. Right. But here, this is, this is what was going on. And so the people had this incomplete understanding of Jesus Christ. And, and that's how day one starts of his final week. Celebration, right? And, and um, in this triumphal entry. Let's fast forward to the end here and look at them. By chapter 27, what do we have? We have the crucifixion. <coughs> Think about that. Chapter 27, keep a finger in there. We'll go, we'll go back and forth through here. But uh, in chapter 27, we read this. Then, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Catch that? That's sarcasm. Verse 30. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Is, is that a little bit different than what happened on day one of that week? They were calling him son of David, saying that he's the next king. He's the savior. Now they're saying hail to the king of the Jews, but they're saying it in a sense of mockery. Like, boy, were we fooled. Our expectations were way up here, and Jesus, whew, we, not only do we not like him, we hate him. We hate him. And, and then back to it a little bit further, and 
we'll read this, that in verse 35, that they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Which I find it interesting that they consider that an accusation. But in reality, they were exactly right. There was Jesus, the King of the Jews. So when we look at that timeline, seven days from triumphal entry to the crucifixion, we see that this is, in fact, I would have to say, politically speaking, this has to be the fastest decline in popularity I have ever seen. Right? I mean, one day everyone loves this person. The next, you know, with one week, in one week they hate this person. That is a fast decline. Why? And there were two, these are two very different responses. In one, in one case they're yelling, Hosanna, save us. In the next one they're yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. Very different. So when we, when we do this walk through the, through the week, we understand, you know, and, and on Palm Sunday, where they welcomed him as the son of David. And in the crucifixion, they, they mocked him for being their king. So what happened in these seven short days that shows us the gap between their expectation and the reality? And I'm going to fly through these, these chapters, all right? So just kind of go through them. And then this week, as you go through the week of Passion, I would encourage you to read these in detail. But this will help kind of understand the, the context of all this. But let's take a quick look. So in, in chapter 21, right after he is, uh, he is welcomed in, right after all the Palm Sunday stuff, stuff, we have what we call the purification of the temple. So Jesus comes into the house of prayer and he calls it a den of thieves. Now if he's trying to gain popularity as some kind of political leader, that was, that was a bad move, right? To go in and walk in and say, and say, oh, this place, this is a den of thieves. And he went right to the heart of, of where they were at, and he says, this is wrong, because they're selling. They were actually selling forgiveness of sins. And you could buy this and get these sins forgiven, and, and, and he's looking at that, and so that is not the way it's supposed to be. Which blows my mind that any organized church could ever come to that point. And you see that in Catholic church history, don't you? Where they were actually selling the forgiveness of sins to make money. Jesus had no part of that. In fact, he starts flipping tables. If you don't believe me, read chapter 21. Not a, popular, not, not a popular message, but he purified the temple, made sure it was not about money. Chapter 22, what do we come across? In chapter 22, he has this great political inquisition. It's, I find it very interesting. He just starts knocking each group one at a time of all these religious political groups. Uh, he, he deals with the political leaders in the, at the beginning. In verse 15 to 22, he starts, he starts knocking the Pharisees. Verses 23 to 33, he starts knocking the Sadducees. And verse 34 through 40, he starts knocking the scribes. These were the heroes of the day. And so typically, if you, if you watch in any election season, what you find is, is people are looking for alliances. And here's Jesus saying... I can't align myself with this, with this group of people because of this, 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 this. I can't align with this group of people because of this, this. I can't align myself with this group of people. And he's like, Lord Jesus, if you're here on popularity, you're doing all the wrong things. Well, guess what? Jesus wasn't after popularity, was he? He was after something completely different. In fact, he wanted to purify them. He wanted to, to, to create a house of prayer. 
And then in the end of the, the verse, Jesus argues for his divine authority over all the political positions. So when everyone starts becoming his enemy, he says, oh, don't worry about it. I've got the only, the, the only person in the world that I care about is, is going to endorse me. And it's God because he and I are one. That's quite a statement. Chapter 23, what do we find there? Prosecution of religious leadership. In fact, I call this the woe chapter. Because you find the word woe all through this chapter, right? And, and, and Jesus just starts talk, talking to the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he just pronounces woe on them. And he calls them everything from snakes to, I mean, it's just, it, he's, is, he, is he being accurate? Yes. Politically, was this a smart move? If you want to be crucified, right? Chapter 24. What do we, we find? Here we have prophetic judgment. This is probably the part that connects the most to what we've been studying in the book of Revelation. Uh, and we have this prophetic judgment where he talks about this coming of judgment, that, that there's going to be a time period of a tribulation and, and there's going to be punishment and the coming of the Lord and the rapture of the faithful. And he talks about all that. In fact, I'd like to go ahead and read some of that. Let's look at uh, 24 uh, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do, not, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So the people were proud of their temple, and they're saying, Look, we're, we, we've prepared the way for the Messiah. We've prepared, we're ready for the Messiah to come in. Jesus looks at it and says, Punishment's coming. In fact, it's going to be so bad, these stones aren't even going to hold up. Every stone of this building is going to be torn down. By the way, that did happen. Every single one of those stones has been pushed off, and, and they're laying in a pile to this day. We continue in the, later on in the chapter just to give you a glimpse of the kinds of things Jesus was saying to them. Look at verse 15 through, through 21. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand... So you've got to go back to Daniel to, to, to understand that. Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not has been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Is that politically popular? Again, no. He's telling judgment is coming. Chapter, chapter 25, parables of judgment. Got the parable of the foolish virgins, and he's basically saying that they were like them. He's got the parable of the talents, and, and you know the parable of the talents, and he's basically saying that you're like the guy who did nothing with the message you were given. And, uh, and he talks about the, how the Son of Man is going to come and judge. So let me ask you this. Does it, it, does it come as a surprise to you when you look at what happened in chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25? Does it surprise you that when you get to chapter 26, what you're going to find is a plot to kill Jesus? Anyone surprised now? I mean, when you look at a big picture and you say, how do we, how do we get from celebration uh, of Jesus being the king to crucifying him, calling him the king, how do you get there? Well, we begin to see it, that Jesus had to come in and clean house first. 
He, had to, he wanted to be Lord over their hearts. He wanted to change some things. And, and he saw the corruption. He said, you can't be corrupt. He saw the mistreatment of the poor. He said, you can't do that. He saw the, the mishandling of the word of God by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and he had to deal with, with all of those things. And so that's why we find this plot to kill Jesus. And that's what brings us to chapter 27, which begins with Pilate's acquittal and ends with crucifixion. I think it's interesting that Pilate never said he was guilty. I mean, this is the first time I know of under Roman history, over in a Roman situation where you, where you hear that a person was pronounced not guilty and given the death penalty. I mean, I find that, that interesting. You know why? Because Jesus was not guilty. You know who was guilty? The people of Israel and you and me and every human being on the planet that's ever lived or ever will live. We're guilty. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he was working his way to that cross <coughs> on purpose for you and for me. Amen. Jesus was not making political blunders. He was making the decisions that he knew he needed to do for you and for me. I don't know about you, but, but I get overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus Christ in that week to speak the truth and it's still working. Sent himself to the cross to die for the very same people who were crucifying him. I know we weren't there. But we've crucified Jesus Christ in the sense that we're sinners. And we fail to live up to letting God be our king. It sounds great, right? When you accept Jesus Christ as your savior, and all of a sudden, oh man, he wants to change this and we don't change those things. Guess what? We're no different than Israel. We're no different. And so the problem, I mean, what happened in this, in this short period of time? That, what was the problem? The problem is that Jesus failed to live up to their expectations. Now, it should, make, it should sound a little bit like nails on a chalkboard for you. Just the idea of hearing the word Jesus failed in the same sentence should be like, wait a minute. What did you say? You have to go back and look at it. This is one of those cases where Jesus did not fail. He failed to live up to our expectations. The problem was our expectations. Amen. And, and, and the problem for mankind was that they, they wanted him to come in. And, and in fact, if you look at what they wanted versus what they needed, it was a completely different thing. What they wanted was this political slash military leader to come in and save them from, from all of, the, of their enemies, especially Rome at this point. Right? They did not like the fact that, that, that their, their, their place was, was occupied by Rome. That someone from way out there is telling them what they can and can't do. They did not like that. They wanted this political leader to come in and say, all right, we're going to start a revolt. And, and that's what they wanted. What Jesus offered was to be their, their priest. Now, I, I use that word uh, because the word priest here, it, it, the priest means to be an intercessor between God and man. And so when, when Jesus became actually the high priest, as what we read in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, he became the intercessor between God and man. In other words, he came to show us, hey, here's, here's the gap between God and you right now. And he came in and he wanted to clean that up. Oh, you're selling forgiveness of sins? No, 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 no. God's not going to deal with that. He's offering it for free. Oh, you have this political class, or you got this economic class where people are worth more because they have more money? No, 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 no. That's not what, that's not what God says. And he, take, he was that intercessor relating to us, speaking uh, for God the, on God the Father's behalf for us. What they wanted was they wanted a savior from their surrounding enemies, and Jesus was offering to be the Savior from their own sins. I'll tell you what, which is better? 
to be saved from your political enemies, to be saved from other nations, or to be saved from your own sins. I'll tell you what, at best, if a leader came in and saved us from all of our, our enemies in the world, whatever they may be, at best, that could prolong my life just a little bit, right? When Jesus saves us from our sins, he conquered sin and death and hell. And guess what? That means we get to live forever. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't trade a few more years on earth of a little bit higher economic prosperity, or prosperity and give up eternal life. Anyone here crazy enough to make a decision like that? Nobody. What Jesus offered was so much better. And I'll tell you what, what we, what we don't know we want, but what we do need is we need Jesus to come in and clean house. We need him to come in and say, Dave Gray, you're selfish. What? Yes, you're selfish. Let me show you. Ouch. That hurts. Doesn't it? Anyone else like it when God convicts you of sin? You're uncomfortable in that? But you know what happens? He starts to clean you up. And he picks you up and he teaches you how to do something. All of a sudden, wow, God, thank you. That was awesome. And, and he starts to do that. And, and, and uh, he, he starts to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. So we become more and more like Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and we'll never reach perfection here on, on this earth. But, uh, but there's a day where we'll be part of God's kingdom where he is once again a theocratic monarch over, over, the, over the kingdom. And we will be obedient servants. Amen? I, you want to be a part of that? I want to be a part of that. And, uh, and so what, what Jesus was offering was so much better. And that's really the, the point. What Jesus offers is better than what we ever could have desired anyway. And that's, that really becomes the point of the whole message. What Jesus has to offer us is better than what we could have even desired. What I, what I do find interesting, and I want to share one last thing here. What I do find interesting is to answer the, answer the question, who did receive what Jesus had to offer? We hear a lot about rejection, right? I mean, overall, he, he was crucified. But did you know that there were some in this situation that did receive what Jesus was talking about? They did receive what Jesus was, was, was offering? In fact, to find it, go, let's go back to Matthew 21, and, and let's look at verse 14. This is right after Jesus turns the tables, right? The beginning of this, of this, of this difficult week. He turns over the tables and all of that, and look at verse 14. We read this. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. Notice, it's the religious leaders that would not accept Jesus. Someone else did. Verse 16 and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Who did, who did receive Jesus? It's those who were humble enough to admit their needs. I find that contrast fascinating. You know, all of these religious people who had, who had worked on their outward behavior to try and, you know, to, to look good from the outside. You know what I'm talking about, right? The people who, who try to, to pretend like they're better than everybody else, but we all know the truth, right? And, and, and you have those, those religious leaders, and they were in, indignant. There's no way, in fact, the word indignant 
means. They would not dignify themselves by, or undignify themselves by submitting to this message. But then he had the blind and the lame. And they come to him and say, we'll let you be the king of our hearts. Let me heal you from your sins. Let me heal you from your diseases. Let me heal you. And, and, God, and we see Jesus actually begin to do what Deuteronomy promised to all the Israelites if they followed God. Some follow God and he starts to heal them. Now I'm not saying that every person that accepts Jesus Christ is going to be healed from their sicknesses. I'm not saying that's not the point. But he is going to heal us from our sins. He's going to forgive us of our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But let me backtrack just a second. I would say that he is going to, to heal us of all of our sicknesses and diseases. He just doesn't do it immediately. But ultimately, we will be in glorified bodies. No sicknesses. Never, never to be sick again. Immortal bodies. We will never even have to see death. Those who are humble enough to admit their needs. The religious were too proud to receive Christ. But the humble receive him. No, no politician can save you. Governments will eventually succumb to corruption over time. And it's, it's human nature. But Jesus is offering eternal life. He's offering to be part of a heavenly kingdom. Something that is so much better. And it can free us from guilt now and free us from sin and, and free us from death in the afterlife. So what it boils down to for application is this. What about you? Who are you in the story? Right? Who are you in the story? Are you the religious person who simply wants a savior you know, or a way to heaven maybe even? Or have you humbly accepted Jesus Christ to be your Lord? I'll tell you, I'll be very honest and upfront with you. Accepting Jesus Christ as, as your Lord is not what you would expect. It's not what you would expect. In fact, a lot of times you'll hear preachers on TV and they preach it, and you've probably heard some of them, that if you accept Jesus Christ, then you're going to be financially well off. Have you heard that? And, 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 and he's going to fix all of your problems, and, he's going to, and everyone's going to like you at work, and your boss is going to give you a raise. I, I've heard it all. I'm, I'm telling you, don't expect that. That's not what Jesus Christ offered. No. He doesn't offer that. What he does have to offer you is forgiveness of your sins. And to be part of his kingdom where he can start to, to, to mold you and change you and tweak you. And it can be, it can be painful at times. But you're going to like what he turns you into. And, and it's worth it. It's not what you'd expect. But it is better. It is better than what you'd expect. You know what? There's, if God did give me all the things I wanted and I, on this earth and he gave me all the money I needed and all the... Uh, the popularity I wanted and all of the, the and everyone liked me and whatever if he gave me all of those things that would be worth nothing if I didn't have eternity right so what he offers is way way better so he's offering that to you there may be some in this room right here right now who have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior you've never come to that point where you said alright Jesus I, I'm inviting you to be the Lord of my life because I, I'm, I'm humble enough to admit that I'm a sinner and I surrender to you. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins because he was perfect. When he was on the cross, he, he did not die for his own sins. He had no sins. He, even, even the Roman judge had to say he was innocent. It's because he didn't die for his own sins. He died for your sins and he died for my sins. 
And maybe, maybe the reason that you haven't accepted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior is because you kind of like being your own boss. You kind of like being your own king and, and living your life by your own desires. And I'll tell you that too. There's no better master than Jesus Christ himself. Better, better master. I don't know if I've even ever told my, my salvation moment story when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I had been studying, believe it or not, I was in Bible college. And I went to Bible college knowing I want to study to see what the truth is. And I hid the fact that I was struggling with understanding the truth from my parents because I didn't want them to think that I was in, in some, that I was on my way to hell, right? But I didn't know what the truth was and I just thought maybe I'm a Christian because my parents are Christian. Anyone else ever feel that way? And so, so when, uh, when I was in Bible college, I was studying, and I studied the Bible, I studied the Quran, I studied the Kabbalah, I, I read the Gnostic scriptures, the esoteric scriptures, I talked to Buddhists, I talked to Hindus. I, I got my hands on anyone I could in this two-year search. And I finally came to that, that intellectual understanding that, that just hit me one day. Jesus is exactly who he said he was. There's no, there's no doubt to that. Right? However, that was the intellectual side. My heart was still kind of like, well, I, I'm kind of, I kind of like to be the boss of my own life, right? I kind of like that. And so I was, I was at that point of decision, like, what do I do? Because, you know, maybe I could accept them later. I mean, all these lies kept coming through my mind, like, you know. And, um, and, and, and many of you know that I, I like rock climbing, right? And so one day I decided to rock climb. I couldn't find anyone to go rock climbing with me, so I went by myself. By the way, that's a bad idea. And, um, and so... I went to what they call traversing. So you're not working to go super high. I'm just working on finger holds by going back and forth, right and left. So, so I thought that'd be safe, right? But the way the cliff went, it was, it was maybe about 35 feet tall. So I was just climbing there. And then as I started going left, the, the way the ground went, it was getting deep. It, the, the ground went down like this so that all of a sudden I realized I traversed enough. I looked down and I realized I was about 150 feet off the ground. That's... This is in no ropes, right? Because I didn't, I didn't have a blade. And, uh, and I've seen some, some climbers that do that all the time. That's crazy, right? And so I'm thinking, all right, it's about 150 feet down. I've got about 40, 50 feet if I go straight up. Up climbing is always easier than down climbing. I'm already above what they call the death zone because if you're above the 50 feet, chances are if you fall, you're not going to live. I'm asking to tell you a different story sometime. I actually fell 53 feet and lived at one point, so that death line is flexible. Um, and so, uh, so there I was, thinking, what did I do? So I started, but 150 feet, I definitely wouldn't have lived. I start climbing up this, this cliff, right? And, I, and, I, and I, I get to this point, and it starts to lay back. For those who like climbing, you know what I'm talking about, lay back, it goes like this, right? And so I was used to lay back, so I, and, and uh, so I... I was working through it, and as long as there's handholds and, and you write techniques, it's not that bad. And I got to this point where, where I couldn't see over the, over the hump, and I, I, I reached my hand as far as I could feel, and it was as smooth as could be. And all of a sudden I realized, there is no way I'm down climbing from here. And my only hope was that there would be a handhold in lunging distance outside of my vision. Does that make sense? And I started thinking, I'm doing the math in my head, I'm like, I don't have the strength to even get back to a place where I can rest. Because you're in an overhang. You, can't, you, have to get, you have to get around the hump before you can even rest. And I prayed, and I, I just remember saying, God, you're a better leader than I would be. <laughs> I'm stupid. I make foolish decisions. And I lunged, 
and there's what we call a jug hold. <laughs> I mean, it's where you can get, it might not sound like a lot, but it was a good inch or two inch hold. That, and so for a climber, that's great. That's like, you know, and, I, and so I jumped and I lunged and I grabbed that and, and, uh, and I was like, there it was. I, I, I got it. And so I, I climbed up onto that and there's a nice little crack right to the top. I got to the top of that rock and I just sat down and said, God, I need you to be the master of my life. I, I understood what it meant intellectually to accept Jesus Christ to be my savior. I understood that concept. He died for my sins. But to actually say, I'm going to give my life to him, and I want him to take over now. See, there's a part of me that thought Christianity meant, I'm going to invite Jesus into my car, and I'll tell him where I'm going, and I just want him to give me good luck along the way. That's not what Jesus offers. What Jesus offers is, is for you to recognize, I don't even have a car. I've got my thumb out trying to get a ride on, this, on the street. And he comes along and says, you're going the wrong way. If you come with me, I'll take you to a better place. That's Christianity. And that's why I want to, to invite you today to join into real Christianity. And so there may be someone here who have even said a prayer at some point. Maybe he said they've accepted Jesus Christ to be their Savior. What I'm asking you to do today is to have a total surrender and say, I want Jesus Christ to be the Lord, the Master of my life, and I'm surrendering totally to him. And that's what I'm, I want to invite you to do today. So I'm, I'm going to ask you in just a few moments. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. We'll stand, and, and if that's you today, if that, that's where you are, then I'm going to ask you to come forward. And, and I would love to, to, to introduce you to someone who can walk you through God's word so that you can walk out of here knowing today that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Wouldn't that be the most awesome thing? And I'll tell you what, you'll have a room full of people that will celebrate with you. Amen? It's the greatest decision you could ever make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for the way you saved us. Lord, you never save us in a way that we could think that it's of, our, of ourselves. Or the, the religious people who thought they were, they were all prepared for the Messiah were the farthest ones from it because of their pride. So Lord, my prayer today, right now, is that if there's anyone in here that has never accepted you to be their Lord and Savior, both of those concepts, Lord, the Lord and Savior, that they would do that today. Lord, as you say in your, in your word, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Lord, I pray that we would do both of those things. We would accept Jesus Christ as our Lord, but also as our Savior. Lord, if there's anyone in here that thinks they're saved, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, but they're not. I pray you convict their hearts right now. And Lord, maybe there is even some here who are saved, but they haven't been living like a saved person. They haven't been living with the idea that you're the master, and they've been following their own desires. Lord, I pray that they too would come forward and, and just do business with you. And Lord, I pray this in Christ's name.